Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Well, thanks very, very much. I'm really delighted to see you all again for the second of this year's talks. I'm also really glad to be talking about The Magic Flute, which is a piece that I love and am troubled by. You know, that's absolutely perfectly common with so many operas that they come from a different time and place and their assumptions are quite different. And let's get this right out of the way. The Magic Flute has two very, very large problems for us now. Uh, One is that it's terribly racist. It just is. Monastatos is a character who is bad because he is dark, because he is a Moor. Um, So his blackness is treated as a sign of his moral problem and degradation. That's something that's really rough for us to deal with at this point. It was used in a kind of fairy tale circumstance in the late 18th century because that was the context that Mozart was working in. The other problem, of course, which is even more dramatic, is that it's spectacularly problematic in terms of its misogyny. Um, There's lots and lots of mean stuff that gets said about women. Uh, Now, there are lots of of complicated circumstances around that as well. There is one line of interpretation that says that the queen of the night, die Sternflammende Königin, which is a great phrase, my personal favorite character in the opera, um, there is one school of thought that says that she's actually probably a cloaked version of the Austrian empress, Maria Theresa and that there is a kind of political message. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, There is also the situation that masonry at the time had a very pronounced anti-woman streak, which you see in all of the little sort of slogans and maxims that pepper the opera about not trusting the chattering of women and those kinds of things. Um, But they do present us with real problems nowadays when we're dealing with trying to mount productions. Now, It's an interesting problem that you could repeat in a number of operas over and over again. Um, I have never been one to say, well, we should just simply suppress it and not deal with it at all. It's better to think about ways to look at these things and look at what positive and what negative things are going on and try to understand that context without necessarily approving it, but especially in a production, feeling out ways to manage it. Um, If you pay attention to the musical theater world, you may be aware that there was a recent shocking renovation of uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma performed uh, in New York that actually confronts the fact that, well, after all, the state of Oklahoma was stolen from Native Americans, essentially. And there's a lot of history of sort of frontier violence that's sort of embedded in the musical, just sort of waiting to be uncovered. Um, Likewise, there's the situation at the end of Carmen that various companies try various methods of sort of managing. Uh, Because Carmen is an opera where everything in the opera makes you want her dead. You won't be happy until she dies and the music makes it so. So we confront that kind of thing in the magic flute as well, those kinds of issues. In a sort of more abstract way, I'm part of the group of people who believe that it's just incoherent. That, in fact, Mozart and Schikanator changed their minds halfway through. Because I am sorry, the first aria of the Queen of the Night, she is not a bad person. She does have the willingness to trade her daughter for favors, but that's kind of what 
bourgeois families do all the way into the 19th, into the 20th century. So the fairy tale trope of, oh, if you rescue her, you can keep her. That fits in with a very long sort of tradition of what the anthropologist Gail Rubin used to call the traffic in women. Men exchange women to form alliances with each other. So it's about using women as a kind of currency in this sort of way. And that's old. That is very, very old and cross-culturally incredibly common. Um, but the Queen of the Night doesn't seem particularly malevolent in Act One. It's Act Two where she pulls out all the stops. Now, is it that she was pretending in the first act? I don't think so. I think they just decided, eh, let's make her bad. And they switched because this is not, technically speaking, an opera. I had a chance to look at your handy dandy teacher's guide and was very happy to see a lot of things in there that I would want you to know. And one of the important things is its genre. Uh, the magic flute is technically what we call a Zingspiel. Now, literally in German, those are the two words to sing and to play. They are musical, theatrical productions in which numbers are separated by spoken dialogue. That is to say, they are the same genre, essentially, as what the French in the 19th century will call opera comique. Carmen is originally an opera comique. Carmen originally has dialogue. The recitatives that you now will hear sometimes were written later. They are, in effect, like operettas, in our estimation, or like musicals. So it's that particular tradition. And dramatic coherence is not always the be-all and end-all. Um, my old teacher, Joseph Kerman, who I have had occasion to mention uh, unfavorably on many occasions in here, um, he was a wonderful man, but he worked on opera in a particular period from a particular point of view that made him critically quite narrow-minded. There were only a few operas that passed muster. The magic flute's an interesting thing in his discussions because he couldn't get rid of it. He couldn't give it up. And so he had to find very creative ways of saying, ah, but it's really dramatic. It's really dramatic. I know this seems really weird and all that, but it's actually truly drama. I don't necessarily think that's true. I don't think that character development is really the crucial issue in it. I think that it's actually really a fairy tale. It's designed to delight you. It's designed to give you stuff that will please you, make you entertained, make you happy. Mozart himself was gratified at the receptions of the opera when it premiered because people actually liked it. It is meant to be liked. It's not some great monument on a shelf like those little plaster busts your piano teacher used to give you. It's actually supposed to be a kind of brawny, dirty, kind of smudged up thing that you listen to while maybe you're drinking beer and eating whatever the popcorn of 1790 would have been or so. So coherence in that sense is not necessary. What's necessary is variety and liveliness and a sense of engaging in lots of possibilities. And in that sense, the magic flute has many, many things to offer. What I thought would be most useful to talk about today has to do with the thing that is hard for us to hear for some very specific reasons. The magic flute is not only dramatically not consistent. It is musically extremely varied in ways that would shock, let's say, a 17th century French 
a dramatist. You know, in classic French drama, you're supposed to preserve the Aristotelian unities. Anybody happen to remember the Aristotelian unities? What are they? Give me at least one. Time. Things need to happen in a single span. Things need to happen in a particular place. Things need to be pure, in other words. The French objection to Shakespeare was, wait a minute, Here's Macbeth, it's this beautiful tragedy. What is this comic scene doing in here? This has no business being in a tragedy. That's like when you have a kid who has the plate with foods, like that's touching this, that's no good, I can't eat that. Um, there's that kind of attitude. You know you want your drama pure. By the time the French are interested in Shakespeare, it's the 19th century, and Shakespeare's willingness to blend things together seems shocking and new and exciting to them. Um, a lot of German theater um, was equally willing to be sort of heterogeneous in that sense. And the Magic Flute is a wonderful example. In fact, the classical style, as we formulate it, uh, when thinking of Haydn, Mozart, and sort of half of Beethoven, more or less, is always like this. What we have lost the ability to notice quite often is that many of the musical gestures that are being used in fairly abstract pieces have connections to the social world. That is to say, there can be a gesture like the gesture of a sigh, or a particular kind of melodic shape, or a particular rhythm, and it actually meant something in regular life, and it's being imported into the music to represent the social content as well. So it would be as if you had a young composer now who said, okay, well, I'm going to write a symphony and I'm going to use a little hip hop over here. I'm going to use some sort of, some, some, um, uh, some sort of, you know, just a million different genres. I'm like having too many genres come into my head at once. Suddenly they started to mix various pop genres with various other kinds of music that you hear with ringtones, with things like that, and you stuck them all into a single piece. Now that's great, and we could listen to it and be like, aha, that's really clever. Oh, I recognize that. Oh, I recognize that. What's going to happen in 50 years? Hell, my undergraduates don't know anything about movies that are over 10 years old unless it's Star Wars. So when you teach a film from 1990, let's say, half of your time is spent explaining the context of it because that's gone. And in the same way, there is a lot of stuff in Mozart or Haydn or Beethoven that we now miss because we don't have those contexts. Those contexts died a long, long time ago. So one of the things scholars do is start to try to recover some of that so we can see if we can reignite its significance. And this is especially important in the magic flute because the magic flute is not a democratic world. The magic flute is a world of the old Europe and its hierarchies. There are different groups of people and they have different social status. And the music tells you so. Even if you did not know from just sort of saying, oh, Papageno is a sort of weird half bird man who works as a bird catcher. Um, you would know he is in a lower social position because of the way he sings. And I want to talk a little bit about how these things actually play out today. Mozart, when he was working on the magic flute, he followed one of his usual principles when writing opera, which is he almost always knew who his singers are going to be. 
and he had a strong tendency to tailor his music according to their abilities. If they had fancy special skills, he was going to use them. If they had trouble with certain things, he was going to accommodate them. This kind of tr treatment goes all the way through Rossini, who was willing to rewrite entire operas depending on the cast that he had. Uh, and Mozart definitely did this in a number of ways. For instance, uh, the librettist and impresario Emmanuel Schikaneder, who you're going to hear about later, was not a great singer. In sort of more musical terms, you say, well, he wasn't really a singer, he's a singing actor. And so there were certain things he wasn't necessarily ready to get quickly. So Mozart's music is designed to help him. It gives him the notes that he needs so he knows where to start singing. And, and we'll see some other aspects of this that sort of feed into this. On the other hand, Mozart's sister-in-law, Josefa Hofer, was seriously talented. She was not only a skilled musician who could execute incredibly difficult music, she had one of those terrifying mutant ranges. And she, so she's singing the Queen of the Night. And he's using those insanely high pitches because she can do them. And that kind of attention is important not only for the performance, but it's important for the social roles that the characters embody. Uh, for instance, we're going to listen to a sequence of three numbers from Act One from very early. The first number will be from the lowest status in the show, the, the, the proletariat, basically, the peasantry. Not necessarily the slaves that belong to the temple, uh, which is another topic we could talk about at another time, but the wild birdman, Papageno. Uh, we will follow that by listening to the first real number for Prince Tamino. Now, interestingly enough, I don't remember if it says this in your notes, as part of the sort of overall exotica of how this is formed, Prince Tamino is supposed to be a Javanese prince. He is supposed to be actually from Asia. Now, what that meant to a Viennese audience in 1791 is probably not much. It was just like, oh, wow, someplace far away and exotic. But they probably knew beans about what that might have meant. But he is supposed to be this Javanese prince. So his social level is considerably higher. The queen of the night, who we'll hear third, is not just a queen, she's a supernatural being. So she's way up in the stratosphere. And in each case, specific musical aspects of their numbers reflect their social position. So let's actually proceed by starting this whole sequence. So we open with Portamino in terrible distress. A dragon is chasing him and he's looking for help. He collapses in a stupor because he's just terrified and three mysterious ladies show up, kill the dragon, and then get all hot and bothered about how good looking he is. And they get jealous, so they, they, they kill the dragon, they're like, hooray, triumph, triumph, and then they're like, oh, but he's so sweet, he's so wonderful. Why don't you two go tell the queen what's going on? I'll stay and take care of him. No, I'll stay and take care of him. No, I'll stay and take care of him. So they finally give up and go off. Tamino wakes up and he doesn't know what's happened. He's like, was I in a dream? What has been going on? And then he hears something and he decides to hide. In perfect style for this kind of a piece, what you get next is a song where the character comes on stage and says, let me tell you who I am now. Um, now, the, uh, just a word about the performances. Um, 
I like to use YouTube clips whenever possible because of access issues. Because you can get access and your students can get access. And that's really important to me. Um, things cost entirely too much for education these days, so free is good. However, I don't like any of the performances with English subtitles that I have available on YouTube right now. What I truly like, my personal favorite recording, of the Magic Flute was conducted by Otto Klemperer in 1964. And so I want to use that performance for most of it, even though it's available mostly as this sort of odd sort of music video fan thing that it was done on YouTube. So what we're gonna do is we're going to hear the music, but I'll provide you with a libretto instead. And then we also have a chance to sort of look at the poetry for a little bit. So the first song, we usually know most of these numbers by their incipits, by the first lines, because they don't have formal aria titles or number titles. So the very first line of this particular tune of Papageno's introductory number is, I am the bird catcher. Der Vögelfänger bin ich ja. Uh, and it's designed in some very specific ways to be proletarian, let's say, to be for the people. The first of these is it is extraordinarily singable. It is not hard to sing. The melody is what in the business we call conjunct. That is to say there are not a lot of gigantic leaps. It's more like a hymn in certain ways in that the range is limited, the notes are fairly straightforward. It's incredibly symmetrical, and I'll talk about that again in just a moment. Um, it's easy to memorize, and it is of the form we call strophic. Again, like a hymn. You have a strain of music, and you have a set of lyrics, and the music will come back with different lyrics, just like verses of the Star Spangled Banner that nobody knows, or various sort of verses in a hymn. It's very straightforward and very direct. Now, there are a few things that are Mozart's little artistic additions. There are a couple of places where you've got a couple of extra measures added to make it a little bit more unbalanced and cute. There are all kinds of things like that, but it's largely in a kind of structure we call antecedent consequence structure. You have a phrase that leads up to a point, and then it gets another phrase that feels like a reply. So the opening strain, I don't remember what key this is in. Pardon me, I, the weather will make me sound horrible, but I'm going to croak out the opening strain here. And pause, and pause, yadadam. This is the big antecedent consequence. Yadadam, da 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 dum, bum bum, badadam, da 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 dum, bum bum. And then the music will reply, yay, and we'll do it again. So if we follow that structure, we'll see it's direct. It's supposed to be immediate in its impact. It doesn't have complicated thoughts. You're not supposed to think of ulterior motives. Papageno needs to be close to a cartoon. That is his function in here. He doesn't have an inner life. He doesn't need an inner life. It would be better if he didn't have it. He is who he is, and his wants are very direct and very simple. What does he want? He wants a girlfriend. What does he want her for? He wants to have a million kids. 
And that's pretty much the, the whole story right there. Let's listen, actually. And notice the regular yum, dum, 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 dum. That's a little dance rhythm buried in there. Now, by now, our singer knows his music. He knows the tune. So we're getting a whole block of text repeated, you see. New thing. And last verse. Now, let's actually go back and start by thinking about the poetic form for just a second. If we're, let's talk meter for a minute. What meter is this in? Oh, ye analysts of poetry in the classroom. Der Vogelfänger bin ich ja, stets lustig heiser hopsa sa. Yes. I am. Iambic what? Tetrameter. The hymn meter. That's part of the reason, of course, you know that Emily Dickinson loves this meter because it lets her get her ironic hymn effects. In fact, it's one of the standard sort of Northern European meters. Um, of course, French poetry, Latin poetry, Romance poetry works very different. But in English poetry, in German poetry, this is about as basic as you can get. The rhyme scheme is also very deliberately moon June in that way. All the rhymes are absolutely obvious. They are completely predictable. They are what you expect. Now, a lot of music critics sort of back in the day would be like, oh, well, you know, that's not really great. How artistic is it if it's actually what you expect? But there's actually a great virtue in predictability sometimes. This is exactly the kind of song, you know, everybody in the audience will walk out whistling this. 
You know, Mozart is smart like Verdi and Puccini this way. He wants it to stick. He wants you to leave and whistle tunes. He wants you to have those with you. And everything about this is set up to let you memorize it. You could all sing this right now, couldn't you? I bet you could. So it's perfectly designed for this, but it's very simplicity and it's repet repetitiveness. It also speaks to Papageno's character. He's supposed to be a very simple person. Uh, and that quality is part of what matters, for instance, with uh, Søren Kierkegaard, uh, who writes very eloquently about this opera in his very famous uh, essay called The Immediate Stages of the Musical Erotic, where he's looking at characters in Mozart as sort of realizations of this kind of sort of interior space and subjectivity. Papageno has no interior. He's all really about this kind of surface, as far as that goes. The contrast comes next with Tamino's number. So the ladies come back. Uh, there's, there's dialogue where suddenly uh, Papageno decides he will claim that he killed the dragon. But he's a liar. And so the three ladies come back and lock his mouth up with a padlock for telling lies because you can't do that. And there's a little sort of maxim. Um, has anybody in here ever seen the beautiful, beautiful version of the Magic Flute filmed by Ingmar Bergman? It's a wonderful film. You'll see a clip from it at the very end today. The first time I saw it, I was deeply puzzled for about half an hour because I thought, I thought my German was better than this. I'm not understanding a word. And then every time there's a little proverb in the, in, in the, in the text, in Bergman's film, they hold up a little placard with the proverb on it. And the first time they pulled up and said, oh, no wonder, it's in Swedish. Uh, because what Bergman did is he filmed a little regional opera company doing a Swedish language production. And it's really, it's adorable and great and kind of shoddy and a little chintzy and it's really charming. But it's also ironic because we don't work well with proverbs now. We, the, the 18th century, they love morals of stories. They love to have, and they're often mean. If you've ever seen, for instance, The Rake's Progress by Hogarth, that's just the meanest set of drawings in the world. It's like, look what happened to him and he deserved it. Um, <laughs> Um, Stravinsky, when he and Auden came to set, the, to create a version of the Rake's Progress, they have a moral at the end, but they don't really know quite what to do with it, and they feel really uncomfortable. Uh, at the end of Don Giovanni, there's a moral to the story, and in the 19th century, they were so uncomfortable, they just left it off. It's like, we won't do the end. We'll just sort of leave that alone. Now we do it, because the end is like, well, he went to hell, and he deserved it. That's what happens. Um, so the magic flute is peppered with these little things, in fact. Um, so poor, poor, poor Papageno, his mouth is locked up for a minute. And so what happens is the three ladies come in, they punish Papageno, and they give Tamino a picture. They give him a little photo, as it were, a little painting of the princess Tamina. And he immediately, because he is of a higher social status, and more important, he is a romantic hero. He immediately is smitten by the portrait because, you know, 
representations are better than real life in Romanticism. Uh, and he just becomes completely enraptured by it. Now, this matters. We often don't think in terms of Mozart and Romanticism. But remember that Romanticism as a sort of aesthetic movement is actually pre-19th century. It goes all the way back into the 1780s, particularly. So he's in perfect, you know, in perfect sync with this particular kind of aesthetic. Now let's listen to his number, which is quite different. First of all, there is much more chromaticism. Uh, Papageno didn't really veer away from a basic major scale. That was the world we were in. Tamino will have all sorts of inflections and feelings and things like that. But it's also really charming because he's very young in Act One. And there's a wonderful moment in this number where Papageno knows what he would do if he had a girlfriend. He would get sugar and feed her. Uh, and that's supposed to be a prelude to then having a billion children. Um, Tamino doesn't know what he would do. If she were here, I would, I would, what would I do? <laughs> he doesn't know. He's not quite sure yet. Um, so what he's singing is in a style that in the terms of the late 18th century would have been called sentimental. It does not mean sentimental in our sense, in the kind of maudlin, mawkish, kind of simple way. It means stirred by deep feelings and sort of really living by feeling more than anything else. And the sort of shape of his melodic lines, the, 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 the arc of the way the melody works, the register, all of this chromaticism, all these things feed in to create this portrait of somebody at once higher in social status, but also much more rich in terms of interiority. In fact, Tamino and Pamina are the characters who have the most inner life in the entire opera. Uh, they are the real romantics. Everybody else has a different role to play. So let's listen to, uh, to Disbidness, this picture. Different tempo. New section. We're not strophic anymore. Soll die Empfehlung 
So here's our O's. Oh, if only I could find her. What would I do? Now this is arguably about the third style we have gotten in the Magic Flute, and it hasn't even been 20 minutes yet. Um, we have gotten a kind of style with the three ladies that represents the operatic style we call opera buffa. Comic opera with ensembles and fast lyrics and quick words and things like that. We've got Papageno, who's practically singing a folk song. And now we've got Tamino, who's singing a song in this sentimental style that at the time would have probably been called Galant. Um, Galant style was a very, very important sort of style for sensibility and for these sort of deeply felt kind of motions. Now we're about to launch ourselves into the stratosphere. The ladies have heard Tamino's infatuation, and so he is ready for his task. But that means that we have to meet the supernaturally awesome Queen of the Night, and she must descend from the skies and give him his charge. She does so as a heroine of a different genre. She comes from the genre of opera seria. She comes from the highest, most classical, most noble operatic genres possible. She's so operatic that she can't even interact very well with anybody else. She's sort of like Donna Elvira in that way, and Don Giovanni, who is a, an opera seria heroine in the wrong place. She's in a buffo spot, and she doesn't even know what she's doing there, because like this is not how people are supposed to behave. In a way, the Queen of the Night is in, this, in, a, in a similar space, but she also has verbal pyrotechnics like you can't imagine, of course. Part of her point is her supernatural athleticism. The way her introductory number works is it falls into three parts. You have an opening prelude, basically, where she comes down from the sky, and the fact that it's this giant instrument 
instrumental uh, introduction just gives her more status. It makes her bigger. It makes her grander in this way. Then, like a good Serdia heroine would, she's got a two-part number. The first part is slow and emotional, and she's going to tell you the story of how her daughter was ripped away from her by an evildoer, ein Bösewicht. Then she will turn to the fast part of her number. You can almost see this as like a foretaste of what in Italian opera will be the Cavatina Caballetta kind of structure. She will then give Tamino his charge. You must rescue her. If you save her, then she will be yours, which is the typical fairy tale trope, with her additional coloratura that shows up. Um, I know most people go to Die Hölle Rache, but I think this is actually a greater aria because it's more artful. In Die Hölle Rache, she's in one mood, which is thoroughly pissed off. In this, she's doing very complex rhetorical things. She is a high rhetorician, and this speaks musically. It's a reflection of her intelligence as a character. She's not just supernaturally powerful. She's also really smart in this way and thwarted. So you'll hear this beautiful introduction. You'll hear this sort of the slower part where she's going to really sort of sort of really milk the emotions. And then we get her sort of fast, dramatic stuff. The singer is the late Lucia Pop, who's got the best high notes I can ever imagine in the business. So let's actually hear this number. This is much more substantial than the first two. got this beautiful growth to it. This is accompanied recitative. Lovely lilting triple meter. This particular thing is especially emotional in this period, this kind of... 
that kind of gesture means nothing but heart-wrenching grief. And now we get our moment of horror that she remembers. Now, everything's been building up to this cadence. This is where she wraps up this part of the story. And you think she's done, but we have what's called a deceptive cadence here. <gasps> and she's going to say it once more for emphasis and make it clear she couldn't do anything. We turn on a dime to the fast part. The charge. Now, by golly, if somebody sang that at me, I would do whatever she said. <laughs> I'd be like, yes, yes, I will do that right now. <laughs> will you sing that again if I come back? <laughs> and that is actually the next major style. It doesn't figure strongly in most of the opera because it is her style. And she only shows up twice, really. The third time doesn't really count. So it's fairly minimal in terms of the amount of time it takes in the opera, and yet it's indelible. It is one of the things that people most remember about the opera, in fact, because it's got such a vivid presence. Now, there are a lot of other styles that I would love to talk about. I'm probably only going to deal with one more for now, just because of time constraints. But you can consider during the trial that Pamina and Tamina will have to go through, there are these very archaic sounding things that actually almost remind you of Bach in some ways. Mozart had been acquainted with Bach's works very late in his life because one of his patrons, the Baron von Sweden, was a huge Bach fan. And this is at a time when Bach was not really very significant in the consciousness of most musicians. He was, you know, his music had become old fashioned, they liked his kids better. Uh, they liked Johann Christoph and they liked Carl Philipp Emanuel very well, but the old Bach was considered this sort of archaic, learned man who was best remembered as an organ builder and critic. 
um, and a hyper-learned musician. So there's this learned style that does show up. Uh, there are other things like that that are included as well, but the last style that I want to include is the style that we associate with Zarastro. Uh, and the priests of Isis and Osiris, the sort of stand-ins for the Freemasons. They tend towards a style that's gonna be absolutely central to huge amounts of German 19th century music, the kind of style that we associate with, with hymns and with choral music. Uh, you know, one of the popular institutions of German musical culture in the 19th century were the things that were called the Menarchors. So you would have just basically the town singing group, which would be a bunch of guys who would get together and they would sing uh, the, this huge repertoire of choral music. That's what the priests sound like. So we're gonna listen to just a little bit of the beginning of act two, when what happens is there is a procession, it's very serene and actually really quite glorious, where the priests come on stage and Zarastro, who is the head of the order, tells his, his brethren that Tamino and Pamina have to go through these uh, initiations in order to become fit for the roles that they're gonna be assuming um, later on as leaders, and then they sing a prayer. We're gonna start after the march at the moment when the chords that people always associate with masonry, there are these three chords that appear as a kind of knocking fanfare, you hear them at the beginning of the opera too, will introduce this really, this really very, very serene, very sort of sonorous hymn for Zarastro with backup singers, basically. The, the other priests sort of act as his pips in, in the back there. So this is Oesis und Osiris. matters that it's in this chordal texture where everybody moves together. In an odd way, it's not that far away from Papageno again because it's deeply singable.
Now, one great result of all of this welter of different styles, I think, is that it actually gives us sorts of, of affordances, kinds of room that we might not have in other operas to reimagine what these different things can mean. There is so much variety that there are actually multiple ways you can interpret most of the characters. You can easily re-envision things that are going on. Uh, my reading of the opera tends to be very, very unkind to Zarastro and all of his priests uh, for a bunch of different reasons. But I think that there's actually space in the text of the opera to let you do that. Just as if you wanted to do a more traditional reading, you can do that as well. There's a lot of room just because of the sheer variety that's available in the opera for adapting things. And a further interesting twist, and the one that I'll leave you with, has to do with an important part of the structure that leads me to recall American musicals one more time. Um, if you think of your classic Golden Age musical, you're always dealing with a couple, with, with pairs of people. The hero always has a sidekick. The heroine always has a sidekick. The, the second bananas have a very particular role. If they are the, if Laurie is the, is the principal uh, uh, actress, then Adu Annie is her sidekick. The sidekicks are always in lower class positions. They are always the funny ones. They're always the quirky, weird, potentially queer ones. They often have relationships, but they'll be the comic versions of the serious relationships, as it were. Uh, and that is actually true of the magic flute as well. Tamino is paired with Papageno. Pamina has a kind of pairing with Papagena, Papageno's uh, future wife. And what I want to leave you with is in fact the Ingmar Bergman conclusion to the fate, the relationship between Papageno and Papagena. So in Pamina Tamino, uh, there's a misunderstanding and Pamina decides he doesn't love me anymore and I've lost my mother, I may as well kill myself. And she is stopped in the nick of time. Papageno thinks that he's been exiled because he can't shut up during the trials and he's never going to get a girlfriend and he may as well hang himself. And suddenly there is an intervention and he gets a girlfriend. Boom, right out of the sky. And they have a little duet, which is about how many children they are going to have, like a million of them. And I wanted to show you the Bergman because it's just an unbearably cute staging. That's really why I want to show it. Uh, the singer for Papageno is the Swedish baritone Håkan Hågegaard. Uh, and this was actually the film that made him an operatic star. Um, he was just singing in a regional company and he was sort of discovered through this. And it's just, it's just so adorable. You just have to see it. He's playing his little magic bells to attract his girlfriend. <laughs> I love this set too. Those are the little spirit boys. Also, one more thing about this is, essentially it's written so that they sound like chickens, eventually, and that's really deliberate and it's hilarious.
They're just happy to be together. That's actually the way I like to remember this opera in particular. Um, I am at the end of my time. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.